Welcome to the Top 10, Overcoming Child Sexual Abuse, the podcast. We're taking time to step back and listen to the top 10 episodes from the last three seasons before we launch into our upcoming season five. I think the value of the top 10 is in reinforcing that trauma shows up in many different ways in our daily lives, but also in many ways that are similar. We share a lot of the same triggers, feelings of betrayal, inadequacies, relationship challenges, anxieties, and more, even if we're functioning incredibly well in everyday life, or even when we put out that we're just fine, when we really do need a little extra help. I hope these top 10 episodes give you that little extra help so that you can keep stepping beyond the trauma you experienced as a child and tap into the power that you have to thrive in all that is ahead. Today, we're leaping into our number four most popular episode, Trauma, Betrayal and Courage, Moving from Silence to Strength, with Dr. Jennifer Freyd. Before we start, I want to share some highlights about Dr. Freyd with you, at least as much as I can, because her career and accomplishments and accolades are so incredibly extensive, it would take the entire podcast just to highlight them all. Dr. Freyd is the founder of the Center for Institutional Courage, her own new nonprofit foundation, and she's also affiliated faculty at the Women's Leadership Lab at Stanford University. Dr. Fried is world-renowned for her work on betrayal trauma, institutional betrayal, and courage, and for her framework, DAVO, that identifies strategies used by abusers to manipulate their victims. That framework is so widely known that actress, political activist, and sexual assault survivor Ashley Judd referenced it when discussing the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse allegations in an interview with Diane Sawyer in 2017. Dr. Fried has also been interviewed extensively by media in relation to the Harvey Weinstein case and is sought internationally to talk about ways that individuals can overcome childhood trauma and how institutions play a role through betrayal and courage. Dr. Fried's books and speaking appearances have reached millions of people around the world. I'm so incredibly grateful that Dr. Fried is joining us today. Welcome, Dr. Jennifer Fried. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. You have done incredible work over many years to help bring awareness to the impact of abuse and trauma in both childhood and adulthood so that we can more fully understand its dynamics and how we can overcome the negative effects we continue to experience. And we'll be diving into that today. But before we begin, can you share a little about your story? What motivates you and what brought you to this work? Well, um, back in 1990, 1991, so quite a while ago, I was a professor of psychology studying memory and got very interested in memory for trauma. It was a topic touching me personally, and it was also in the media. And I realized that even though I had been well-educated, had a PhD from Stanford and was working at an Ivy League school, I didn't know anything about this. And I Um, pursued the topic. I got very excited and interested because it was not only relevant to me, but just completely fascinating. And I ended up switching the direction of my research into trauma psychology and particularly uh, how people handle childhood sexual abuse. And um, yeah, that was a long time ago and it's been quite a journey since then. And through that time, I can imagine you have uncovered so much new learning about how we deal with that. And one of the reasons that compelled me to do this podcast was because I see so much out there that we're learning. And when we can share that, it can really help people, especially in their adulthood, who are still struggling with the trauma from childhood abuse. Absolutely. I think it's a topic that's both of immense importance to our society and to our lives, It's both depressing in one sense because it involves human mistreatment of other humans, 
but it's also inspiring because people do heal and they do become better people. So, you know, that there's nothing more inspiring than seeing that happen. And I think we help others and each other heal as well, because as much as we help ourselves in learning, it takes each of us to open the door for someone else to be able to share what they've experienced, feel comfortable with sharing what they've experienced and be able to to walk forward feeling that they're not on their own and that there is hope. Absolutely. We're very social people, creatures, and we can really help each other. So talking about moving forward together as opposed to alone, let's jump into the first topic of today because it really touches on that. And that's how abusers silence victims and how that affects us in adulthood. And your work has demonstrated how perpetrators of abuse thrive when victims are silenced. And you've developed a framework, Davo, that helps us understand how perpetrators manipulate their victims into a state of forced silence and ongoing abuse through self-blame and guilt. Can you tell us about that, how you've seen that play out and the effects that creates in adulthood? Absolutely. DARVO is an acronym that stands for DENY, that's the D, ATTACK, which is the A, and then reverse the victim and the offender. That's the RVO. Um, And it's something perpetrators or anyone can do when they're accused of something they don't want to be accountable for. So when they deny, it's often a kind of vicious, over-the-top denial. When they attack, they tend to attack the credibility of the person making the accusation. So they say, oh, you're just um, doing this for money, or you're crazy, or you, your memory is all messed up. And then the most pernicious part is the reverse victim and offender, because what they do is they say, I'm the, the victim of your accusation, and you're the offender by making this accusation. And it's, it's a kind of gaslighting, that reversing victim and offender, because it it really can confuse people about reality. And this is a term I came up with actually a long time ago in the 90s. And it was inspired by observations I made of what sex offenders said and did. And um, uh, more recently, we've been studying it. And my primary um, collaborator on that research is Sarah Harsey. And we've done a series of studies. And we found two two or three kind of main things so far. One is DARVO impacts the victim and it in particular leads victims, the true victims, to blame themselves. And we know from other research, self-blame is very much associated with silence. So if you think about it, it means DARVO works for the perpetrator in that way because if they can DARVO somebody and then that person blames themselves and doesn't talk, that's going to help the perpetrator avoid any accountability and also continue the abuse. There's another thing DARVO does, which is it influences how third parties experience it all. And we know this from studies using experimental methodology where we have people read about abuse allegations that do or do not include some, some amount of DARVO. And we find that when DARVO's there, those observers, those third parties doubt the victim. They fall for it. And again, this shows it's effective. That's why perpetrators do it. But there is good news in that. We've also found that if we educate people about DARVA, we teach them the concept, the terms, the words, they are less susceptible to it. So that's great. It means we can kind of diminish or defang DARVA by educating people. Right. And what you bring out really highlights that this is manipulation. It's pure manipulation. And if people can see that as a strategy to manipulate someone, it then enables the victim to then understand better that it's not us. As you said, we go into self-blame, we don't speak up, and we stay silent from 
childhood through to adulthood because we have seen situations, we'll talk about one now, where adults have such reluctance to speak out because of that, let alone children when we're kids. So, for example, you were interviewed by the media in relation to the very high-profile case of Harvey Weinstein, and you spoke about how this case demonstrated the ability of perpetrators to really silence their victims. Adults, for, for many of us who were abused as children, the silence that was forced upon us still creates negative effects in our adulthood. Those feelings of fear, anxiety, and self-doubt. And in an interview with Diane Sawyer, Ashley Judd, uh, who revealed her sexual harassment by Harvey Weinstein, and who was also sexually abused as a young girl, reflected and, and she said, perpetrators are shameless. They put their toxic shame onto their victims, which we then internalize and carry around with us. So how do we overcome these incredibly hostile dynamics so that those who have been abused will feel more confident to reach out for help and support and to break the silence that many still keep about past abuse? Yeah, that's such an important question. And the answer is that it's probably a lot of things we need to do. So there's um, some, you know, there's the societal changes we all can contribute to. It's people are not going to be able to safely report what happened or disclose or talk about it at all unless they can do it in, in an environment where they're believed and validated and um, respected. I think respect is the most important thing there. And, and when we make a safer environment, people are much more likely to actually opt to talk about it. And it hasn't been safe in our society. It's been very unsafe. When people disclose, they get, they get pounced on. They get, there's retaliation. They get shamed. Their control over their own story is often taken away from them. And that can be very harmful, even if it's done with good intention. So I, I think we can, as a society, be doing so much better. And a lot of bad conversations come not from poor intention, but from ignorance. So we can do a lot better in teaching people how to respond, how to give those compassionate kinds of responses that are, are respectful to people. And then the other piece of it is, you know, individuals themselves who, who might have something to share, how, you know, what can they do? And one of the things I think is really important to know is that education can help individuals as well. They can learn how to recognize who is a safe person to talk to and identify those dynamics so that they're less susceptible to them. Yeah, and you use the word respect, which really struck me when you said that, because when you've experienced childhood abuse, respect is the thing that you lose within yourself. And so in adulthood, reaching out and feeling as though you're going to lose even more respect because you're still holding on to that sense of judgment of yourself really makes it difficult. And I think sometimes people don't know how to respond. Yeah, absolutely. People are, are not well educated. I, my, I've raised three children who went through very good public schools and they learned not just academics, material, but they learned a lot of practical things, but they did not learn how to have these conversations. And if you think about it, most people have something difficult that they've experienced and have trouble talking about. That That's a pretty common human experience. We could, I'm sure, make the world a bit better, safer place by teaching all of us, how to have those conversations so that things weren't stuck inside festering. So you also highlight um, the harmful ongoing effects of betrayal trauma, a term you created to explain the effects of abuse when the abuser is someone upon whom the victim relied for survival or support. And many of us who experienced childhood abuse were abused by a family member or someone known to us. 
So can you talk about how the lack of trust that results from betrayal trauma affects us in adulthood and some of the ways you have found that we can overcome this trauma in our adult lives? Absolutely. So yeah, you've described betrayal trauma well. It's a, it's whenever you're um, mistreated in a, in a pretty big way by somebody that you trust, depend on, or close to. And it, it creates a terrible bind because when that happens, you, you have this overall um, kind of survival need to be connected to people. And that connection requires that you engage with them, that you you feel positive emotion towards them, you you keep the channels open. Um, but when somebody betrays you, what you might want to do is actually pull back and uh, either confront them or withdraw from them. And this creates a bind because if your job is, especially think of a child with a parent, and your job is to stay connected, because without that connection, they may not take good care of you anymore. Um, your job is to stay connected, and yet you, you're being mistreated, so you kind of want to withdraw or confront. That's co- very, very contradictory. And so betrayal trauma theory is about how to survive that situation. People very often kind of block out some awareness of the betrayal in order to stay in this necessary relationship. And this leads to something we call betrayal blindness. And betrayal blindness is when you just don't see the betrayal. And it's a survival skill. It allows you to stay in a relationship that might be keeping you alive. I mean, what's a kid supposed to do? Like confront their parent and maybe get worse abuse? Mm-hmm. So so it's it's a it's actually a coping mechanism, but it has a cost, right? Which means you're not seeing all of reality and you can't protect yourself as well. And this can last into your adulthood, even when you're away from, you know, if you've left your abuser, you can still have this tendency to block out information. So really, actually, the the cost of betrayal trauma on trust is, is two different things. One is it can lead to an unwillingness to trust because here you've been betrayed by somebody you trusted. So now you're not going to trust anyone or you're going to be very wary on the one hand. And on the other hand, it can be overly trusting. It can be unable, you know, not fully able to see when you shouldn't trust somebody. So you get into the relationships with people that you really shouldn't be getting into relationships with, like, and maybe other people can see that and they'll be like scratching their heads and going, why are you like dating that person when obviously they're, they're not trustworthy. But as a victim of betrayal trauma, you may not see that. And so it's like a double-edged sword here. Of And of course, if your trust has been violated, it makes sense that your trust system is going to take a hit. But the good news is people can heal from this. It is recover, People can recover from this. And it's through positive, good relationships that that, re, that recovery is especially likely. So it might be a trusted therapist or... A, a good friend, um, somebody who you can begin to to really learn how to trust, how to have open conversations when there's been some rupture, and people can recover. My sexual abuse is at the hands of my father. And for me in my adulthood, I found that I would just keep looking for the betrayal because it was such a regular thing during my childhood that it was so hardwired, it's unconscious almost. And so sometimes it's too late and we start to self-sabotage. It's kind of like a ball and chain. You don't realize then you're holding back or you're not living things fully because you're waiting for the door to slam. So how do we see that? How do we become aware of it? How do we kind of red flag ourselves so that we're more attuned to what we're doing that's counterproductive to just our happiness and our relationships? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I think you're describing really well to this. This um, Sometimes we talk about it as relational hypervigilance, where mm. you're being, you know, you're, you're doubting a person that you 
ideally would trust and mm-hmm. is worthy of your trust, but you, you're not able to because of past betrayals. Mm-hmm. And you can do that at the very same time as also being blind to betrayal. It's, it, it, you know, that both of these costs can occur at the same moment. It's, it's sort of um, remarkable how complicated, cre- you know, we are, but, um, but I, I think, you know, not everybody has the same path to recovery. There's not just one path, but one one way is to have a person find a person in your life who you can actually openly discuss these issues and say, you know, I'm having trouble trusting you right now. Um, and I, I don't know if it's because you've done something I'm picking up on or I'm bringing old baggage into this, but this is how I'm feeling. And having the opportunity to discuss that and get some reality check from the person, a really good person will will tell you, well, you know, you actually are picking up on something. I wasn't totally forthcoming with you or and and or, you know, I, I don't think this is about me right now, but let's explore it. So how do you find that person? I think that's the that's the biggest challenge is how do you find that person you can have those kind of conversations with and you know if you're very lucky when you pick a therapist you'll have such a therapist but you can't not all therapists are great some are not um for many people it's not through therapy it's through friendships or or other relationships there's a in the book um i wrote with pam burrell called blind betrayal in the last chapter we talk about uh, actually an assessment you can use for whether a relationship is healthy in this way. Um, and there's you know, a set of questions you can ask yourself about the impact of a relationship on you and begin to sort of decide, is this a relationship that's going to help me grow and heal? Or is this a relationship that's going to keep me stuck in self-doubt and self-blame and confusion and distrust? Um, nothing's perfect. Nothing's like 100% here, but but you know, I do believe that you can educate yourself on what a good relationship looks like and begin to be more discerning in who who you're having relationships with. Well, yeah, and we'll be sure to include that reference at the end of the podcast so people can refer to that. And when you said to open the conversation with someone by saying, I'm having trouble trusting you. That kind of gave me chills almost because it struck me how hard that is just to say to someone, I'm having trouble trusting you. And and maybe it's not necessarily because of anything about you or our relationship, but because of things that have happened to me that this is triggering, even if it's nothing bad. I mean, I've had great times with my partner trigger bad things. And I'm like, where did that come from? And so it's forced me to have a conversation that's that's hard to have and be really vulnerable. And, and so I guess that just speaks to what you said, you, you pick your people um, and maybe start small with the, the trust that you put out there and get your kind of toe wet, so to speak, before taking a bigger step into that. Absolutely. I don't know. I, what. I, I just want to reinforce what you just said. Yeah, I think these things really are truly risky. And you can get hurt when you trust somebody and you're vulnerable. But one of the ways to, to um, protect yourself some is indeed just what you said. Start small. Do, do a little bit and see how it goes. Another Another piece is, you know, be wise about your timing. Like, don't try to do this when the person you're talking to is obviously upset and and mm. not going to be able to hear you very well, right? Like, so, and, and then an, another sort of thing we all sometimes forget to do is to be clear about, about I and you, right? So if I'm having trouble trusting, I can phrase that as something about me. Or I can try to, I could phrase it as something about the other person. And as soon as you phrase it about the other person, you're going to probably meet defensiveness mm. because none of us like to be accused of being bad people. Yeah. And, and, and none of us like to be distrusted either, right? That doesn't feel good. So, so the, so to the extent you can say, you know, I know, I know this might be really about me, um, but it would really help me to talk to you about it. 
and and keeping it on yourself and picking a time when the person you're talking to is not hungry or exhausted or angry or stressed out or all the all the things that make it harder to have mature conversations. Right. Wow. And you when again when you said that you just made me realize that we do have to own it that relationship. As you said, we have to take it on uh, ourselves. I think were the words used. Take it on ourselves and almost kind of be very conscious of the timing and the language we're going to use and maybe even prepare a little bit for that conversation so that we feel a sense of as much as we can, I guess, control, if you will, over how we enter that conversation. So we are as much as we can doing it in a way that we're um, kind of moving it forward as opposed to just kind of blurting something out in the moment of, you know, emotional distress, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the things I said about look for a time when the person you're talking to is in a good state of mind. Mm. It's also important to be in a good state of mind yourself to the extent you can, you know, there are just sometimes it's better to wait for a conversation mm. and, you know, take, take a breather and not, not blurt it out. As you said, like really think it through and, and be prepared for what, what to look for. And if it's going well, or if it's going poorly and be ready to, to shut it down if it's going poorly. Yeah. And so that really leads into the second topic that we wanted to talk about today, which was the courage to confront, which really then gets into um, confronting the abuser, but also sometimes confronting other people who have let us down through that process. So um, let, let's talk a little bit about that. And, and your work draws a lot of attention to the difficulty of confronting an abuser uh, and the positive and negative effects that can have on those who suffer the abuse. And just referring back to Ashley Judd's interview with Diane Sawyer, she said that at the time she didn't feel powerful enough to come forward earlier than she did. And for some, there's been the opportunity and ability to confront their abusers. And for some, there hasn't because of that power dynamic and so much more. There is immense fear, sometimes a life-threatening feeling in confronting an abuser. And you especially speak of how abusers often act to confuse the victim, create doubt in the memories of the victim, and even go so far, as you said earlier, to gaslight victims. And for those reasons, many adults have not confronted their abuser or are living with re-traumatization after confrontation has gone wrong. So can you talk about the courage to confront an abuser and your suggestions to help those struggling with the effects of confrontation. Yes. Um, one of the concepts that, that I want to um, remind people of, we've probably heard of the idea of grooming, that um, perpetrators can groom their victims. And the idea is that perpetrators can manipulate, consciously or unconsciously, they can manipulate their victims to be more um, susceptible to them and to be more silent after abuse has occurred. And um, DARVO is, is often used as a grooming technique. Um, and, and, you know, as I said before, part of DARVO is a kind of gaslighting where the victims feels that they're, the, they're to blame. In some way, they're the, they become the perpetrator of the situation, even though they didn't really start out that way at all. And so confrontation, probably the, the first thing bef that's important is all, all the steps you take before you do the confrontation, right? So um, understanding, uh, unpacking these dynamics, really understanding them as best you can before you do the confrontation. So you know when you get a certain response that it's a, a, a pattern that you've seen before, you can identify it and be less susceptible 
to it. Another important thing before the confrontation is to be really clear what your goals are. Are you going to, you know, are you expecting you're going to get an apology or acknowledgement or something like that? And be careful that the expectations are, you know, not unrealistic because then you're set up for, for pain. (laughs) You know, most confrontations don't lead to the perpetrator acknowledging or, or apologizing. So, um, you know, if you're clear what your goals are and you're, and you're clear with as much as possible with understanding what happened in the past, a confrontation can be constructive for people in that it, in some sense, can take what happened from being contained inside and moving it externally in some social sense. And that can be a, a really positive experience for people. It, another you know, sort of thing that can probably really help people is not to be alone. So have a, a good friend or somebody maybe even trained in this, these matters there with the person making the confrontation who can step in if things get out of hand or provide afterwards some reality check of what really happened in that experience. Well, they're amazing recommendations of how to manage this. And what's striking me as we go through this conversation is, again, that we can move through this and and, and break out of some silence and confront and have discussion with people that we want to and need to talk to if we can put thought into how we're going to do it. And I think that's something that we don't think about we don't think about oh I have to kind of plan this out and as you said you know who is my support maybe I should let someone know that I'm going to have this conversation with this person and they know to be available as soon as I finished having the conversation for example or making sure that you have something that makes you feel good and healed and centered kind of ready to step into as soon as you have that conversation so you can ground yourself again I think these are things that we don't necessarily think top of mind but they're so important on having a conversation that is more helpful than harmful yeah I think you know it's like a lot of things where some preparation really pays off you know if you were going to go run a race you'd probably want to prepare in advance and make sure you know you'd been practicing in some way and that you had were well hydrated and you had a plan for what you're going to do after the race Right. And the other thing you said that was incredibly powerful, I thought, was what are your goals and expectations? And again, that kind of sounds maybe too rational for a conversation about this. But when you say expectations in particular, that really resonated with me because we can have the expectation that is just too much of a a stretch. And so maybe we need to step back and say, well, if I can just expect to have this, as you said, get out of me and put it out there. So that's just my part of it. And just releasing that from my, my, from my being, that's going to be a lot. And if I can just do that, that's kind of part one check, you know, part two, maybe the expectation is maybe they'll respond favorably, you know, but that's kind of a sad to say, but maybe that's a bonus. And then we, you know, if we get through that, we can have a, what would part three be kind of, you know, what's the least I can expect. And then maybe what's the most I can expect and have that spectrum in mind as we go into that confrontation. Yeah. Two, two sort of practical things that I've heard people say really help them. One is to write out before the confrontation, what they would like to say. So that like a script not to, some people want to then read it, actually read it. But even if you don't read it, it just having written it out might help you um, keep more um, to what you really want to say. But then even maybe more important is write out what response you ideally would get. And some for some people that this is useful to do after they've gotten a disappointing response is write out what would have been the, the response they wanted. And it can be very healing for people because they can kind of read it and understand what a good response would have been, could be. Um, And finally, you know, related to all this writing, I would say some people 
will choose not to confront. And that's the, they, the, there are many good reasons for that. People don't have to confront. For, for those people, they may, they may benefit from some of these writing exercises. They don't actually confront the person, but they write down what they would have said if they had, and they write down what sort of response would have been really healing for them. Yeah. And as you said, we don't necessarily feel the need to confront sometimes. Let's talk about those who haven't had the opportunity or ability to confront. So not necessarily that they've even had that choice. For example, I consider myself lucky because my father died when I was in my mid-20s. And so he no longer had a presence in my life, at least in person. And that was helpful for me. I was thankful, as horrible as that may sound. But I think that's a double-edged sword for many of us who were not able to directly confront the person who abused us. Because as much as it can feel like a relief, it can also feel unresolved, especially through our adult years. So what can you suggest to those who have never been able to directly confront their abuser? And is that important in healing and moving forward? You know, I think in the ideal world, confronting one's abuser and particularly getting a a good response is really helpful. And if that can happen, that's great. But as you said, it can't always happen. Maybe the person's not alive anymore, or maybe they're just not safe, and it's really too big a risk. And in that case, I would go back to what I was talking about, which is the, is the role of other, other forms of externalizing what happened. So writing, um, perhaps dancing, different people have different ways, but finding a way that works for the individual that allows expression that gets it out of something that's a sort of a a secret that isn't processed all the way and into a form that allows a little bit of distance from it. It might be writing poetry. There's different ways people can do this, but I think the main theme is to not necessarily confront the perpetrator as a living, breathing person, but to find some method of pulling it out from entirely inside oneself and and having a way to to externalize it. And you've spoken uh, also not only about confronting individuals, but you've also drawn a lot of attention to what can be done to confront abuse that happens uh, in the context of institutions. And in particular, you've spoken about institutional betrayal and courage. And one article from Australia highlighted the need to firstly recognize the behavior and its impacts, and then the need to refocus on the needs of the survivor. And as I was reading this, it struck me how this work is also so important in drawing attention to the childhood trauma that's triggered in the workplace due to lack of institutional courage that confronts and protects against various types of abuse, even microaggressions. So can you talk more about this and how institutions can cultivate the courage to confront those dynamics? Yeah, so the last 10 or 15 years, my main research focus has been on institutional behaviors around these topics of sexual violence and other kinds of mistreatment, because I I realize so much of that mistreatment occurs in an institutional context, in school, in church, in the workplace, in, in society where you have a government. There's this larger institution around people, and people um, form very strong attachments to institutions. So a lot of people love their church or their school or their their government or whatever it is. And so they're vulnerable to betrayal, not only from individuals, but from the institutions too. And one way that can occur is when institutions respond poorly 
to an interpersonal violation that's occurred in the in the in the institution. So, like a when the military um, punishes victims of military sexual trauma rather than helps them, that is institutional betrayal. And we see so much institutional betrayal. It's and we know now because we've done studies. It really impacts people psychologically and physically. It's quite toxic. And one one of the ways you're kind of referring to, I think, is a failure not only for how institutions handle events that have occurred recently, but also the people's needs due to events from long ago. And so many members of our society have, in fact, been victimized as children. And then they go into these institutions, or maybe as children, they're in them. And the institutions are insensitive or worse to that. Um, Institutions can change. And in fact, it's probably one of the most doable things right now facing us is fixing institutions in this way. And I call it institutional courage. And just want to mention, I formed a nonprofit recently, the Center for Institutional Courage, to be a center and hub for research and education on this topic. So um, I feel very strongly about this. And institutional courage includes, among other things, it includes being what we call trauma-informed, being aware of how trauma impacts people, being educated about victimization, and doing things that are healing rather than exacerbating the harm. Um, For instance, what kind of reporting policies an institution has can make things much better or much worse for victims. And so then kind of segueing into the third topic related to that, women in the workplace and overcoming the silent and hidden barriers from childhood trauma. You've done a lot of work in this area of institutions and you've done a lot of work as part of Stanford University's Women's Leadership Innovation Lab, which aims to advance women's leadership by overcoming barriers that create inequality and marginalization and exclusion. Likewise, the annual Women in the Workplace report by Cheryl Sandberg's Lean In organization and McKinsey & Co. draws attention to women minorities feeling like the only in the room in a way that impedes inclusion and advancement. And, And here's the thing. We know that inequality and marginalization grow from imbalances in power. And one of the impacts of childhood abuse can be feeling less powerful in our adulthood. And when we look at it that way, childhood abuse and trauma are very much silent and hidden barriers to inclusion in the workplace. And this isn't talked about very much in women's leadership, which adds to feelings in the workplace of being isolated and unsupported and the only in the room that many women experience. So can you talk more about this and what can be done within institutions to help overcome these silent and hidden barriers in a way that cultivates inclusion and advancement? Yeah, you're making such a good point. And I think it's a way our society still has so much work to do. Um, I notice even with, say, the Me Too movement, which has been so beneficial in so many ways, it hasn't necessarily gone really far enough when it comes to abuse people have experienced in their childhood. So it's been much more focused on workplace abuse that has occurred to individuals as adults. And yet we know from lots and lots of scientific research that victimization rates are particularly high in childhood, and it's particularly likely to lead to lifelong or or long-term challenges that do, of course, impact life in the workplace. Um, And the isolation people experience, because this is not fully acknowledged and talked about, just adds to the harm. So one of the things I'd really like to see change is more awareness about childhood victimization and its life 
long or I don't want to make it sound like you're you're stuck because as I said people do heal but it can be lasting um, without without intervention lasting struggles that that need to be addressed um, I mean among other things it's the only way we're going to stop the the sort of cyclic nature of the problem is to help people heal so they don't inadvertently repeat the abuse on the next generation. Um, so what what can happen? Well, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I really think it has to do with education more than anything and consciousness of raising, that we need to keep keep the drumbeat on. We keep need to keep raising the, the issue of childhood mistreatment and adversity and its, its long-term impact, and then teach institutions how they can be more welcoming places for individuals who've had these experiences, which is so many people. I mean, this is not a tiny minority. This is a, this is depending on everything we count and, you know, do we, people will disagree on exactly which events to count, but really it's, it's probably um, half of people at least who have mm-hmm. experienced some significant childhood mistreatment. And and they get to their adult life and they get to the workplace and this isn't talked about and the situation at work may be set up to be triggering you know for for these individuals this is all can all be changed through awareness education and fairly simple steps it can and it's again a bit of a double edged sword because it takes those who have experienced that trauma to be even more courageous, if you will, in, in in putting it out there so that it becomes less silent and less hidden. And that can be particularly difficult in an institutional setting. And I think the danger that we're going into now is that many institutions are going to be very focused on getting their bottom lines better and healthier. But you can't do that without getting your people better and healthier. And mental health is still very much, you know, a taboo. But COVID, thankfully, in one aspect, um, made mental health less taboo because everyone was experiencing, you know, mental health issues. So on one hand, perhaps now going into this time of recovery, if you will, post-COVID, there'll be more ability to talk about these things but that has to be matched with the institution's capacity and will to actually do something about it right right yeah and and i think one of the important things to keep in mind here is that institutions they they often make decisions collectively make decisions or leaders make decisions individually that are short-sighted that the ultimate way to protect the institution is actually to be taking steps as you said that make life healthier and better for everybody in the institution so it's kind of um it's kind of like enlightened self-interest a phrase a, a friend of mine just used recently um, speaking about institutional courage, that institutions that show courage will ultimately be the ones that thrive, even though there's going to be some short-term risk and cost in doing it often, but it's the smart thing to do. It's like going to the dentist and getting your teeth cleaned or, you know, getting, heaven forbid, a colonoscopy, because that's a way you keep yourself healthy and alive in the long run, even though you have to go through some difficult steps to get there. Institutions that are courageous are going to be the ones that will be around in the future. Yeah, and that's a great way to term it. I love that phrase, institutional courage, because it is the ability to be courageous on all of our parts, especially through different times where we really can break through to better places and surely this has to be a time where we can come together with courage and understanding and break through to better places together amidst all we're collectively and individually dealing with 
So your yeah. work is so amazing and extraordinary. And I, I am excited to use that word and optimistic about where we'll all go with this because I, I do believe it it has to go. We can make it go consciously in a, in, a, in, in a good direction for everyone if we work on all of this together. But I do think we can be inspired by the changes that have occurred and the knowledge that if we do keep at it, we are going to keep making the world a better place. That's a fantastic way to wrap up and think about what's next. Thank you so much, Dr. Fried. I hope you gained a lot from this podcast. I know I did. Don't forget to take the relationship assessment that we spoke of during the podcast. Just visit www.overcomingchildsexualabuse.com and click the relationship assessment link as part of Dr. Fried's podcast information. To stay connected to Dr. Fried, visit her website at www.jjfried.com. That's www.jjfried.com. And you spell fried, F-R-E-Y-D. And there you'll find her books, her keynote presentations, information on her new nonprofit foundation, the Center for Institutional Courage, and much more from her decades of work on betrayal, trauma, and abuse. I hope you'll check all of that out. Thanks again for spending time with us today. To receive notifications of the podcast, subscribe or follow the podcast today and visit overcomingchildsexualabuse.com for more about this and upcoming podcasts. I hope you'll join us next week. Until then, stay well and be good to yourself. Remember, to get help for anything you're going through, reach out to a qualified professional. You can search the internet, call 24-7 hotlines, including the National Child Abuse Hotline, or speak to your doctor for resources. In case of a mental health emergency, please don't hesitate to call 911. Copyright 2021, Kathy Anderson. All rights reserved.